Hello, everyone, and welcome to Live Through Jesus with Courtney Gilmore. On this episode, God hears the cries of the people and calls Moses out of the burning bush. What is God's name? Exodus 2.23 to 3.15, Lesson 3 of the Exodus Study. Now, just as a quick side note, I'll be reading all the scripture references for you, so you're free to just sit back, listen, and absorb, or you can grab your Bible and read along. Most of the time, I'll be reading from the New King James Version, but if I switch, I'll let you know. At the beginning of each episode, I'll introduce the title, so if you want the entire study in writing, you can go to livethroughjesus.com and buy it for under $5. Each one will cover two to three months' worth of episodes. And once you buy, then it'll be immediately available for download. In addition to a little extra studying, it also allows you the benefit of some charts and keyword definitions, but it isn't necessary. Okay, so let's get started. On the last episode, Moses was born and raised by the Egyptian princess But when he was 40 years old, he went down to look at the Israelites and saw how oppressed they were by the Egyptians. And he killed an Egyptian who was beating one of the Hebrews. And he thought he hid it. But the next day, he went out again and saw two Hebrews fighting and tried to get them to stop. And they revealed that they had seen what he had done to the Egyptian the day before. And so Moses had to run away from Egypt because it was known that he had killed this Egyptian and Pharaoh was trying to kill him. And when he ran away, he went to the land of Midian and he saw some men running the women away from the well whenever they were trying to water their father's flock. And so he ran them away so that the women could get their water and ended up marrying one of those women and staying with her family and working for her father. Now, if you missed that episode, you're going to want to go back and listen to it because we talked about standing up for justice because three times Moses saw someone else doing some sort of injustice to another person, especially whenever people are abusing their power and authority. And he stepped in for that weaker or more powerless person. And so we talked about what God wants us to do whenever we see people in a weak or powerless situation and how we can do that in an appropriate way using the gifts that God's given us. This week, we're going to pick up at the end of Exodus 2 and talk about what happened after Moses got to Midian. Unfortunately, I still do not have the full study done for y'all to purchase, so I will let you know whenever that is done, and you can go to the website and get a written copy so that you can follow along and just have these scriptures written down in front of you. I'm going to go ahead and start reading in Exodus 2, 23 and 24. It says, Now it happened in the process of time that the king of Egypt died. Then the children of Israel groaned because of the bondage, and they cried out, and their cry came up to God because of the bondage. So God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and God looked upon the children of Israel and acknowledged them. So the Pharaoh that sought to have Moses killed has now died, so there's no one there that is seeking his death, so he's able to go back to that land without fear. 
And the people have been totally oppressed for all of these years. And they have been crying out to God for rescue. So I want to talk just for a moment about what do we do whenever the circumstances are too overwhelming and we're powerless to change them? Do we cry out to God, the only one that can really help us? And then just as a body of believers, do we collectively cry out to God? Listen to this verse in Second Chronicles 7.14. This is God talking to King Solomon and he says, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. So collectively, if we as a body of believers will humble ourselves and pray and seek God's face and turn from our wicked ways, It says God will hear us and forgive the sin of the people collectively and heal our land. So that can mean for our community, for our state, for our country. If the believers will humble themselves, pray, seek God's face and take care of the sin in their own lives, then God will listen to our prayers and he will heal our communities or states or nations. So that's something that we should be doing as believers. Now, the Israelites called out to God and it says that God heard their prayer and he saw how horrible the life was for these people. And he remembered his promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, obviously, God never forgot the promise, but he's calling it to his memory now. He's saying, this is time. It's time to go ahead and begin to fulfill this promise because these people have been oppressed for so long and they've been crying out to me. Now, I want to read to you Genesis 15, beginning in verse 13, because God told Abraham that all of these things were going to happen and they're all coming to pass now. And so I want to read what God told Abraham that's now about to happen all these years later. This is Genesis 15, 13. It says, Then God said to Abram, Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, and they will serve them, and they will afflict them for 400 years. So that's what has happened. They have been in a land that isn't theirs, and now they're serving these people, and these people have been afflicting them. And it says the time has been 400 years. Verse 14, and also the nation whom they serve, I will judge. Afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. Now, as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace and you shall be buried at a good old age. But in the fourth generation, they shall return here for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So God told Abraham that this was going to happen. But after 400 years in the fourth generation, that his family will leave that place and God will judge the people that have afflicted them and they will come out with great possessions and they will return to this very place that Abraham is laying. But he says that can't happen yet because the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So we have to assume that 400 years have passed and the iniquity of the Amorites is complete now if God is saying that it's time for him to bring his people out of Egypt. 
Now let's read the last couple of verses. And it came to pass when the sun went down and it was dark, that behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a burning torch that passed between those two pieces. On the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying, to your descendants, I've given this land from the river of Egypt to the great river Euphrates, the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadamanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Gergesites, and the Jebusites. So the land of all those people from the great river in Egypt to the great river Euphrates, that's the land that God's going to give them. So God has heard them cry out and he says, all of this is about to come to pass. It's time to go ahead and start enacting that plan. Okay, let's go ahead and read on beginning in verse 1 of Exodus 3. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the back of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of the bush. So he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, but the bush was not consumed. Then Moses said, I will turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush does not burn. So when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, Here I am. And God said, Do not draw near this place. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. Moreover, he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look upon God. And the Lord said, I've surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. So I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and bring them up from that land to a good and large land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Now, therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come now, therefore, and I will send you to the Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? And he said, I will certainly be with you, and this shall be a sign to you that I have sent you. When you've brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Now I want to turn real quick to Stephen's account of this in Acts seven thirty through 34. It says, And when forty years had passed, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in the flame of fire in a bush in the wilderness of Mount Sinai. When Moses saw it, he marveled at the sight, and he drew near to observe the voice of the Lord that came to him, saying, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Moses trembled and dared not look. Then the Lord said, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their groaning, and have come down to deliver them. And now, come, I will send you to Egypt." Okay, so did you catch that in the account that Stephen gives, it says 40 years have passed. So Moses was 40 years old whenever he was in the land of Egypt and decided to kill the Egyptian and had to run away. And now 40 more years have passed. So he lived in Egypt for the first 40 years. This is the second 40 years of his life he has lived in Midian. So Moses is 80 years old. 40 years in Egypt, 40 years in the land of Midian, 
And we talked about Joseph in the last study and Joseph slowly rose from the shepherd of his father's flock to royalty in Egypt. But notice now Moses quickly goes from Egyptian royalty to the shepherd in his father-in-law's flock. So it says that's what he's been doing for the last 40 years is shepherding his father-in-law's flock. So he used to be someone very important in Egypt and now he's a shepherd. This verse also tells us that his father-in-law was the priest of Midian. And this should not surprise us because as we talked about last week, the Midianites are descendants of Abraham through his wife Keturah that he married after Sarah died. And so it would make sense that they would worship God and know God because they were also descendants of Abraham. Now, as he was out with his father-in-law's flock, he came to a place that was called Horeb. And Horeb means desolate place because they were in the wilderness. And so that town was named for its desolation. He just tells us in Exodus that this was a mountain in Horeb. But in the account that Stephen gives, it says that this was Mount Sinai. Now, he is writing Exodus after the people have already left Egypt and they're wandering in the wilderness. So when he describes this mountain, he says, this is the mountain of God. And the reason is because if you noticed at the end of this passage that we just read, God said, when you've brought the people out of Egypt, you will serve God on this mountain. Well, they already have. By the time he's writing this, they have served God on this mountain. And so Mount Sinai is the place that God spoke to the people and gave Moses the Ten Commandments and all of that. And so they would understand it as the mountain of God, the place that God came to us and gave us his laws and all of that. So that's the reason he calls it the mountain of God. Now, there was an angel of the Lord that appeared to him in the midst of a bush. And so Moses first noticed that this bush appeared to be on fire, but it wasn't burning up. And so when he went closer to investigate, God called out to him and he said, take your shoes off before you enter this place because this is holy ground. And so I want to give you a couple of thoughts here. Holy means set apart. And so this bush is set apart from all the other bushes because God is present there. And so God told Moses to take his sandals off before he approached him out of reverence for his presence and then in preparation to enter this holy place that God is. And so do we enter his presence with reverence whenever we're in prayer and worship? Do we reverence God? And then do we prepare ourselves, especially our hearts? Do we prepare ourselves to enter his holy places? I want to read you a couple of verses. The first one is found in Leviticus 19.30. And it says, You shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. I am the Lord. God's Sabbaths were also holy days because they were days that were set apart from all the rest of the days to be days of rest. And so he says, honor those days that I set aside for you to rest and reverence my sanctuary. Treat it as holy. Treat it as the place that I have set apart for myself. Now let's read Psalm 89, 6 and 7. It says, For who in the heavens can be compared to the Lord? 
Who among the sons of the mighty can be likened to the Lord? God is greatly to be feared in the assembly of the saints and to be held in reverence by all those around him. So this says that we should fear and reverence God. But why is that? Well, that's found in the first part of the verse. It says that there's no one in the heavens that can be compared to him. And then it also says who among the sons of the mighty. So what person can be compared to the Lord? No one can be compared to the Lord because he is the only one. And so we fear and reverence him because of that. Now, listen to Second Chronicles twelve fourteen. If you're reading this in a different version, it may not say quite what we're wanting it to say. So I want you to listen to it in the New King James Version. It says, And he did evil because he did not prepare his heart to seek the Lord. So in talking about preparation, if we do not prepare our hearts to seek the Lord, then we will do evil. So we have to be purposeful and prepare ourselves. We have to prepare ourselves before we enter his holy place and his presence. And we have to prepare ourselves by seeking him and entering those holy places so that we can function in this world in a righteous way and not do evil. Now, the reason that the bush is not burning up is because it is shining with the glory of the Lord. God is glorious. He is light. In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, on the very first day, he created light. But he did not create the sun, the moon, and the stars until the fourth day. And so for the first three days, the light was God. The S-O-N, Jesus, was illuminating the earth before the S-U-N lit the earth. So God's glory is made this bush look like it was burning. So God has revealed his holiness by shining his glory through this bush. He's also revealed his holiness by specifically saying this is a holy place. But then when he begins to talk to Moses, he tells him how holy he is. Listen to verse 7. It says, And the Lord said, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, and I know their sorrows. So I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and bring them up from that land to a good and large land, to a land flowing with milk and honey. Listen to all of the ways that God is presenting his holiness here to Moses. He says, I have seen the oppression of my people. Are there other gods like the gods that were in Egypt that were inanimate objects? Could they see the oppression of their people? No. Could they hear the cries of the people whenever the people prayed to them? Could these inanimate objects hear them? No. Did they know what they were going through? This isn't just a knowledge of their sorrows. God is experiencing each and every person's sorrow. Our God has ability to do that. Is an inanimate object God able to do that? No. And then he says, I'm going to deliver them. Can an inanimate object do that? No. Can a person do any of those things? See all the people at the same time. Hear people that are not standing right there in front of them. Can we as people completely know the experiences of anyone else, much less everyone else? And can we really deliver anyone? 
especially a humongous group of people without the Lord's help. No. And so God is showing his holiness, how he is God, just in these couple of verses when he talks to Moses, because he is saying, I can see, hear, know, and deliver like no other God, like the Psalm 89 verse told us that he is comparable to no other God or person. So God's revealing his holiness to them. Now, in the lesson, I've written three words that I want to give definitions to. These are just good words to know about God. And they are omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient. Omni means all. And so it's all powerful, all present, all knowing. And God is saying that he is those things here. He is all powerful. He is able to deliver them. He is able to see and hear and know. And then he's omnipresent. He's all present because he can be all those places to see, hear, and experience the things that they're going through. And then he's all knowing. He told us that too, that he knows their sorrows. And he's showing his faithfulness by explaining that he remembers his promise to Abraham and now he's ready to fulfill that. He's explaining that to Moses. And Moses is probably like, great, I'm so glad that you're coming to to deliver your people. That's wonderful. Thanks for letting me know, God, right? That's what he's probably thinking because he's over here in Midian. He's not even around the people anymore, but he's like, my heart hurt for them before. So thank you for letting me know that you're doing that. And then... God says, um, yeah, and I'm going to use you to do it. <laughs> and then Moses, not so excited, right? Not so excited. And so next lesson, we're going to talk about all of Moses's objections in more detail. But we do have to mention that he initially objects to this. And so his first response to God after he says this is, who am I that I should do something like that? And God says, hey, I'm going to be with you. It's going to be fine. And you will come back here after you get done, bring my people and worship on this mountain. So let's go ahead and read a couple more verses and see what Moses's response is to God whenever he says this. This is verse 13 through 15. Then Moses said to God, Indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Moreover, God said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial to all generations. So it initially seems like Moses is asking, are the people going to know who this God is that I'm talking about? You know, what if they ask me, who's the God that you're talking about? But I don't think that's what he's asking. Listen to what Stephen has to say in Acts 7.35. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, who made you ruler and judge? is the same one that God sent to be a ruler and deliverer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. So he's reminding us that this Moses is the one that they rejected, the one that the Hebrew looked at him and said, who made you ruler and judge over us? 
That's the same one that God is sending back to be ruler and deliverer for them. Whenever we talked about him saying that before, it was as if they had resented Moses for being royalty and being raised by the Egyptians and not having to experience any of the things that they experienced. And so most likely he's more concerned that they're going to wonder if he knows their God. Because he was raised by the Egyptians, he's not one of them in their minds. And so they're going to say, um, do you know our God? What is his name? Tell me who you're talking about. I think that's more what he's saying. And so God's response seems odd at first. But again, I think it's just revealing his holiness saying how he is set apart from other gods. If you think about it, whenever he says, I am who I am, I think what he's saying is, I'm so incredibly important. I don't even owe you an explanation as to who my name is. That would be like if I were just like an incredibly important person and you were to be talking to someone and say, you know, I've been doing Courtney's Bible studies. And then they were to say, who's Courtney? And then it'd be like, um, I am who I am. It's kind of like, um, I'm Courtney. Hello. Right. And you might say that it's like, um, she's Courtney. Like how in the world can you not know her? Right. And so that is God. That's not us, but that is God. And so he's like, um, I just am who I am. Like I'm the God. And then he goes on to say, I'm the God of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so this would tell the people that Moses knows Abraham, their father. Therefore, he must also know the promise that God has given to Abraham and his people. And that would confirm that God has sent him to deliver them. If he knows who their God is, this would just confirm that further. Now, the rest of the time, we're going to rest on this phrase that he says, I am has sent me to you. Why does he call himself I am? It makes sense for him to say I am who I am, but who calls themselves I am? What does that mean? You are what? Well, he's all encompassing. Listen to Revelation 1, 4. This is John speaking to the seven churches in Asia, and he says, Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. So he is the God who is. He's the God who was. He's the God who is to come. He is past, present, future. He encompasses all of time eternal. Now listen to Hebrews thirteen eight. It says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So again, encompassing all time for all eternity, but he says he's the same. So he's the same for all time. This God never changes. His name never changes. So we're going to talk about who God is and remember that God is always these things. He always was these things. He always will be these things. God does not change. So then who would the Israelites know him as? If he's saying this to the Israelites, if he's saying, I am has sent me, I am what? Who would the Israelites know him to be? Well, First, they would obviously know him to be the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's the reason he said it. But that would also mean that they would know that he was the God that called Abraham. 
and the one that promised him the huge family and the blessings and the special land, right? He was the God that chose them above all the people of the earth to be his people. And then Moses is also telling them right here that he is the God that saw their affliction, heard their cry, and is now faithfully sending him as their deliverer to carry out his promise that he gave to Abraham. So they would know him as all of those things just by him saying, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But who else would they know from all of time beginning? Well, everything that we've read about God up until this point, right? Which means beginning in Genesis 1, all the way here. So everything he's been in Genesis and these 400 years in Exodus. So that means he's the creator of heaven and earth. He's the ruler over all of its laws and systems. He is the God that had mercy on Adam and Eve and redeemed their sin with the blood sacrifice. He's the God that judged the whole earth and sent a worldwide flood to destroy it. He's the God that had grace on Noah and saved his life. Remember, it says that Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. That's grace. He is the loving and enduring God that promised never to flood the whole earth again, right? Because he's not going to lose his patience again. He's going to endure all of the people's sin and never flood the earth again. And then he's the faithful one that has kept that promise all these years, right? He's the one that saw the pride in the people at the Tower of Babel. And he's the God that had the power to frustrate their plans so that they weren't allowed to build that tower. And then he's the God that scattered all of those people throughout the earth and created the languages and the races. He was Abraham's protector in the foreign lands of Egypt and the land of the Philistines. Even after Abraham lied and told both of them that Sarah was his wife, he protected him. Whenever he rescued Lot, who had gotten caught up in the battles, God protected him. He was the provider for Abraham that made him prosperous whenever he left all of these places. More prosperous than when he entered. He's the faithful God that provided Isaac, the promised son, to Abraham and Sarah. He's the compassionate God that wasn't willing to sweep away the righteous with the wicked whenever Abraham pleaded with him for the towns of Sodom and Gomorrah. He said, surely you are a compassionate God that would not sweep away the righteous with the wicked. If you find even 10 good people, will you spare the whole place? And God said, yes. So he's that compassionate God, but he's also the just God that when he did not find 10 good people, that he destroyed the evil that lived there in Sodom and Gomorrah. He's the God that tested Abraham's faith, but then provided the substitute sacrifice so that he did not have to sacrifice his son Isaac. He's the one that heard the prayers for Isaac's wife that Eleazar prayed whenever Eleazar said, when this happens, that is how I will know that that's the woman you have for him. And God quickly answered that prayer by sending Rachel to him to do the exact things that he prayed. He's the God that protected Jacob from Esau and later reconciled them. He's the gracious God that comforted and gave Jacob a new name. He's the God that revealed his plan to Joseph and then faithfully carried that plan out for their salvation. 
He's the God that strengthened Joseph during all of his times of suffering and granted him grace with all of the people that he encountered. Remember, it said he gave him favor upon Potiphar in his house and upon the prison guard when he was in prison and upon the Pharaoh. And then he's the God that enabled Joseph all along the way for every single position that he was put in. He's the God that healed and reconciled and reunited their family after the brothers had sold Joseph away and he had not seen them for 20 years. And he's the God that providentially worked in the evil that the brothers intended to make all things good for them. And so now do you see? Now do you see why he said I am? Because he is the creator. But he's also the destroyer, right? He created the earth, but he also destroyed it. He's the author. He's the king. He's the ruler. He's the deliverer, the savior, the redeemer, the judge, the protector, the provider, the promise keeper, the multiplier, the revealer, the healer, the comforter, the reconciler, the planner, and the caregiver. He is forgiving, purposeful, strengthening, enabling, active, seeing, hearing, knowing, faithful, just, gracious, merciful, loving, compassionate, enduring, patient, powerful, sovereign, mighty, friend. All of those things were things that we just talked about. So he's all of that and more and more and more, right? So could God really tell all of those names? No, he is all encompassing. And so whenever they said, who are you? He's like, I'm all things to you. That's who I am. I'm all things. And so I just want to say to you today that God is all things to you. All of these things that we listed and so many more can God be for each one of us. And so I hope that this reminds us of who God is and helps us just fall in love with him because he's the only one. That's why he's holy. He's the only one that can be all of these things to us, to each and every person at each and every time of their lives that they need him to be those things. He can be a healer to me and a creator for you. He can be a creator for me and a destroyer for you because you may need something destroyed and I may need something created. God is all things. So I hope that that encourages you today. I hope that it makes you love him more. Not what he can do for you, but who he is. Because this is our God too. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of these Israelites that he's talking about, he is our God. That God that we just gave all the names for, he belongs to us. We are his people too. So this lesson, we talked about who God is, and that's where everything has to start. But next week, we're going to talk about who we are in him. And so if we start with who God is and the focus is on him, Then we can later go to, okay, so who does that make us? But a lot of times we want to start with, who am I? What am I? All the focus on me. 
So we first have to put our focus on God. And then when we know who he is, we can find out who we are. So make sure that you subscribe so that you don't miss the next episode that will tell us who we are in him. Also, leave me a five-star review. Leave me comments wherever you're listening. You can also email me. My email address is Courtney at livethroughjesus.com. Meditate on who God is in your life today and praise him for that. And then we will talk about who we are next week. Thanks and have a good day.